First of all, let me say it's an honor and a privilege to stand before you and testify about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, without whom I would not be here today. And I want to honor all the first responders, my brothers and sisters in law enforcement, fire, EMS, and every aspect that goes with it. I thank you. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you. My walk with Christ and the Lord was, was an interesting one. But by 2009, I was a train wreck. And I knew I needed the Lord, and I was taken to church. And for the first time, I felt I was touched by God, and I walked out of there on fire. And the Lord does what he always does and takes impossible and makes it possible. And he placed me into the position of child abuse. And I used my commute time to pray. First thing I prayed for was forgiveness for my stupid self. Lord, save me. Forgive me. Save my family. Save my children. Save my marriage. Save my home. Save my finances. I am a wreck. And I can't do it without you. Please, Lord. Had the opportunity during my commute to listen. KPRZ. And In Touch Ministries was on, and, and they talked about making yourself available to God. In one of my prayers, I said, Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? Am I where you want me to be? I'll go anywhere you ask. I'll do anything you ask to me, Lord, but Lord, you know me. I'm hard-headed. I'm stubborn. And when I get angry, I don't play well with others, and I don't take direction well. And lastly, Lord, I'm not, I'm not proud. I'll sweep the floor. I'll take out the trash. But if you could use me in some small way to serve the kingdom, here I am. Use me, please. September 25th, 2012, he answered that prayer. And one last thing. I asked him, Lord, please use large, single-syllable words, preferably about this high when you communicate with me. Because it's not that I won't be obedient, is I fear that when you communicate with me, I won't hear it. So single-syllable words, about three feet high, that would, that would be wonderful. And uh, September 25th, 2012, I show up to work, and my boss hands me a sticker and says, you need to go to this station in Santee, California. It's one of our safe cities that we patrol you need to take care of uh, child porn on the phone. I will spare you the details. I developed enough evidence, so overwhelming and compelling, the judge even wouldn't let it all in. I assembled a team, and I went forth to take this man into custody. Somewhere between the time I left the station and the time I got out to our target location, which was in Lakeside, my hometown, about a mile from my house. I went up there, six strong, plus a marked, had the place wrapped up, thought I was tactically sound. I go up there and beat on the door, call him out by name. He won't come. I've got keys and consent. But experience teaches me you don't walk into somebody's house unannounced. Try the bottom lock. It's locked. 
get ready to go for the deadbolt. It's rigged shut. I know he's inside. He's hiding. He does not want to be held accountable for his actions. And some radio traffic pipes up and says, hey, I hear a little girl screaming. And I can't tell if it's in the apartment you're trying to get into or one next to it. I had all the evidence. I had overwhelming and compelling evidence so strong. I wasn't in a rush for anything until that radio traffic chimed in. And then if there was one millionth of a chance that there was a small child locked inside that apartment with a predator who abused children in the most horrific ways, there was no way I was going to let that fly, not under any circumstances. My only other alternative is to boot the door. I get up, I give it a kick, and the, the bottom door buckles, and my partner who was with me looks at me and is like, really, Hoss? 6'2", 250? So, you know, if he didn't say it, he eyeballed me. I knew exactly what he's talking about. So I get up, and I'm like, all right, hold up. I've done this a thousand times, my fault. Boom, I blow the door open. I take one step in, and all chaos breaks in. It was high noon out in Lakeside, a bright September day. I went into a blacked-out apartment. Suspect took time to prepare the apartment. Blinds down, towels over the windows. So I went from really bright to really dark. And my eyes had a hard time adjusting. He was proned out about 10 feet from me, about from here to that, set, to that monitor right there. And he had an M1 Garand, and it was chambered in a 308. And he opened fire. The first round hit me in the left arm and almost severed it completely. Destroyed the humerus, ripped off my bicep, severed my brachial, tendon, uh, brachial artery. Almost only thing holding my arm on was a piece of tricep meat. And what happened to me is my whole body went into shock, like one of those UFC knockouts. I seized up. And we were on an upstairs landing completely exposed to high-powered rifle fire. And this is where I want to honor my brothers right there. They could have dove down the stairs. They have family and children of their own completely exposed to high-powered rifle fire. They returned fire instantly into the apartment, not knowing where the suspect is. He's changing locations. But they drew the attention off of me and onto them, which allowed me time to recover. I don't know exactly how much time passed to recover, but when I did, I saw white static for a while, and when, when I came to, I was on my back facing the suspect. I wonder what truck just hit me, and I did this whole self-assessment. Now, for me, time got really slow, and I had tunnel vision really bad. My whole world consisted of this hallway, the doorway, and that was it. That's the only thing I could tell you, and the bad guy, until the prelim a year and a half later when I saw the, the actual apartment crime scene photos for the first time. When I come to, I realize that I've been shot, and I start doing a head-to-toe assessment. How many times have I been shot? Where is it? How many holes do I have in me? And I'm checking. Meanwhile, my partners are engaging with the suspect. I'm laying flat on my back. And you guys see me in this arm sling. That's exactly where my brain told me that my arm was. But I kept looking, and my arm wasn't there. I said, I feel it there. I just don't see it there. And as I made my way up, actually, my arm was up above my head, but it was spun the wrong way and going the wrong way. And I was like, oh, that's bad. And it felt like a gallon of milk getting poured down my neck because that's how fast I was losing blood. And I told myself, okay, you got about four minutes before you pass out. Four minutes after that, it's game over. Control your breathing so you don't go into shock. Conserve your ammo. Reloading will be quite challenging. I went through very simple thought process, breathe, check, see, check, where's my weapon, oh, it's at the end of my right arm, 
Thank God I went back first. My dominant arm, weapon still in my hand. Simple thoughts. See bad guy, shoot bad guy. Just like that. The only thing that worked on me was my neck and my right arm at that time. I was stuck within a few feet of the door. I could reach and probably touch the door jam. And don't, don't kid yourself. Don't think for a minute I didn't want to hop up and run out of there, but my body would not cooperate. I told my legs to go. They told me no. I said, we'll argue about this outside. Let's go. Uh-uh. So I'm stuck. See bad guy, shoot bad guy, I engage. I'm hyped up on adrenaline. I'm trying to stay focused, and I burn up too much ammo in that first engagement. And as I'm rapidly losing blood, my ability to communicate gets worse and worse, and my response times get slower and slower. And I'm looking, my partner's calling to me, and I glance out the door, and I see my partner, Mike, he's kneeled down, and he's, he's handling business. And I look, and I see the supervisor, he's doubled over in pain because a, a, a round went from wrist to elbow, and he got a bullet fragment in the chest, and he was, uh, he was injured as well. Now, I heard the supervisor call the all call, and in my world, it's 1199, shots fired, deputy down. I heard that part go out. I heard the supervisor also say, hey, I need a rescue team, ballistic shields, long guns at the bottom of the step. We need to overwhelm. We've got a deputy rescue that needs to take place right now. What I didn't know was bullet fragments from the suspect that cut the supervisor's wire. He was talking into a dead mic. So I'm laying there and I'm engaging and I'm trying to talk and my partner's like, Ollie, where's he at? And I want to say, man, he's right there. Can't you see him? But those words are coming real slow. So I just resorted to hand signals. He started directing fire according to my hand signals and it pushed this guy off of me. He ran to the back room, started firing out a back bedroom at the responders. Now I'm looking out there and I'm sitting here right here. I'm doing this whole body assessment check again. How bad is it? And I look and I look and I see my partner, Mike, and he's stuck. I'm right here inside the door, and the supervisor's on the other side of him. He's all shot and bleeding. I'm all shot and bleeding, and Mike's stuck in the middle. If he runs in after me, he's going to be lying down right next to me. You know, and I don't see the suspect at this time, but he's low crawling on his stomach. I don't see him. I'm trying to communicate with Mike, and I look over at him. I finally get the worst of speaking. I said, come get me, bro. And then the suspect used a piece of door frame that I kicked off and pulled the door shut and locked me inside. That was the first time I thought I was going to die. Up until that point, I thought we were winning. I know that may seem a little bit odd, but I heard the all call go out. I knew that a rescue team was coming. I knew we were getting ballistic shields and long guns, and I knew I needed to stay alive long enough for the cavalry to show up. And I knew it. And then he shut the door on me, and then my perspective shifted gears a little bit. And I thought to myself, okay, this is it. This is where I make my stand to my last breath, to my last drop of blood, to my last bullet, it is either him or I. So we started playing this game. As the suspect ran, he locked the door and he ran back down the hallway. And my reaction times were so slow, by the time I recognized him, saw him, tried to get engaged, he was already gone. So we started playing this hide and seek game around the corner. He was at the corner of the intersection. He'd lean over with his rifle and look out, and I'd raise my arm up, and I'd engage. And in the second engagement, I started putting lead on him because he'd scream out in pain. And I know I hit him every time because every time he'd yell out in agony, and, uh, and I ended up getting three rounds on him, uh, twice in the stomach and once in the butt as he turned to run. And he shot me a second time. This one hit me in the chest and went through and through, and it punched a hole through me the size of a grapefruit. I got my lung, diaphragm, 
colon, spleen, gone, ribs, gone, uh, intestines, bullet fragments everywhere. My arm hurt so bad from that initial shock of getting it almost ripped off. When I got shot the second time in the chest, I barely felt it. I don't know what happened. I guess I was maxed out in pain. That's just my experience. And so I'm laying there, shot the second time, and I thought for a minute, okay, still in the fight, still alive. And I'm engaging with this guy until I get slide lock. I run out of ammunition. Now, I was wearing a tactical vest. I had four extra mags right here. I dumped my mag. I set my weapon right here, mid-thigh. And I'm reaching, and I can't get my arm to cooperate, like an act of Congress to get my arm to come over here and, and, and extract the magazine. And everything, I had, I had my vest set up. It's all muscle memory. I can do it in my sleep. But everything shifted. And under that, masses amounts of stress and blood loss and trauma have catastrophic and life-threatening injuries. This doesn't work very well at all. Just to concentrate, to go from here to here, is like climbing Mount Everest. I managed to extract the magazine. I have it up here right next to my face, and I'm staring at it like this, telling myself, don't put it in backwards. That'll be problematic. Get your weapon, make it hot, kill this man, stop playing around. So as I'm staring at it, suspect walks over, kicks the mag out of my hand, stands over the top of me with his rifle, and he says, where's your duty weapon at? And I got to tell you, in all the fun and excitement I was having, I forgot where I put it, and I said, I don't know, man. And he believed me. Thank you. Suspect turns around and walks away like this, and as he gets a few feet away from me, I hear a magazine box hit the ground, so I realize, oh, he's out of ammo. Well, I'm out and he's out, and now it becomes a race to reload. And I promise each and every one of you in here, I wanted to win, and I wanted to reload, and I wanted to shoot this man more than anybody else. So I'm frantically grabbing for my ammo, and I can't reach it. And I'm telling myself over and over again, do not fail your family. Do not fail Gracie. Do not fail your children. You're not dying in this nasty child molester's apartment today. Get your weapon. Make it hot. Quit playing around. And I can't get the ammo. My fingers don't work, and the ammo, the mags are shifted, and it's just out of reach, and I'm struggling, and I'm struggling. I hear him put in a fresh magazine box, and I start to panic. For the first time in my life, I'm, I'm in the fight of my life, and I realize I'm losing. And up until that point, man, we were undefeated. And I'm digging, and I can't get it. I can't get it, and I'm frantic, and I can't get it. I can't get it, and I hear him cycle his weapon and make it hot. He's injured. He's not incapacitated. And he cycled his weapon and he made it hot. And for the first time, at that was the moment that I knew I was beat. And there was absolutely nothing I could do. I could not get my ammunition. I could not set it. And I could not get my weapon hot and ready and ready to engage the suspect before he could raise his rifle and execute me. Never mind the gunshot wounds. I just failed my wife. I just failed my children. I just failed my family. And the weight of that almost killed me. And I couldn't take it. And I grasp it, and this little voice pops off in my head and says, you're not dead yet. Keep going. Right on. So I'm digging, and I'm digging, and I'm digging. And I know not any second, any moment I'm about to be executed. I'm about to take a round to the head. And I can't, I can't hold it. I know it's coming, and I can't take it anymore. And, I, and I've gone as far as I can humanly possible go. I've gone as far as my body will let me go. I'm exhausted. I am... In, I am in bad, bad shape. And I said, if today's my day to die, so be it. I'm going to die like a man. I'm going to look him square in the eye. I'm going to take his best shot. I'm going to see what he's made of. And that's the whole reason why I'm here today. 
I raised my eyes to accept my fate, to accept my execution. I had zero control over that, that my death was absolutely certain. And instead of being executed, I had the miracle of all miracles. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, sir, I said it. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, between the suspect and I. And he is magnificent. I get asked this all the time, Ollie, what did he look like? Let me describe. I was in complete and total awe. My body got washed over like warm bath water and I felt zero pain. I've got catastrophic and life-threatening injuries and I'm breathing like nothing's wrong. I don't feel pain in my arm. I don't feel pain in my chest. I don't feel pain in my body when just moments before my whole body was on fire and I'm at complete and total peace. All that anger, frustration, and sadness and sense of failure just washed over me. Now, I don't know what my face looked like when the good Lord got there, but I imagine it was something like this. I like to tell myself that. And he was beautiful. He had white robes. He had a white sash. He's got a nice dark beard. He's got dark brown hair. My man has a nice tan. See, he had his back to me. He looked back at me just like this one time. I never saw his eyes. But I can tell you this. I knew two things. One, that it was Jesus Christ and nobody else. And one of two things was going to happen. Either I was going home to the Lord or I was going home to Gracie and the kids. And either one is a win. And I was at complete and total peace. Prince of peace. I got the courage to speak and I said, Lord, I trust you completely. What do you want me to do with this guy? I got him right where I want him. He's going to surrender any second now. And uh, I crack a few jokes. It's my coping mechanism to deal with a very horrible and violent, horrific incident. It's not that I'm making light of, and I certainly would not make light of Jesus. He's the only reason why I'm here. It just helps me cope as opposed to self-medicating with drugs or alcohol. And the Lord, he was sitting at a stool and he had a desk in front of him and he was, had this bottle of ink and a feather and he dipped it and he wrote this note and he put, it back, put the feather back in the ink and that note was about the size of a 3 by 5 index card and it flew off the desk and I watched it. I tracked it with my eyes like a leaf in the wind. It landed right here on my chest. I picked it up and read it in beautiful calligraphy. It says, I want you to bless him. Let's review. Shot me full of holes. Shot the supervisor full of holes. Horribly abused two little girls. Jesus did not say, Ali, reload, finish the job. This young man and I need to have a chat. It's kind of grace and mercy that I cannot comprehend. I want you to bless him. The only thought that went through my mind was, yes, sir. So I looked right at the suspect and I said, God bless you, brother. And he froze. He's holding a rifle. He doesn't say anything. I don't know if he can see Jesus. I know I'm in such bad shape. Jesus is there. And for my brothers and sisters in law enforcement, it's all fun and games until Jesus shows up, right? And he said, God bless you, brother. I'm going to pray for you. And he set his rifle down. Obedience to Christ. Now, Christ was surrounded by two rings of white light, and inside these rings of white light were inscriptions that I'd never seen before or since, so I call it in my vast vocabulary, I call it writing from heaven. Directly behind the stool he was sitting on was a leather-bound holy Bible. First vision. First of three visions he shares with me. I am real and my word is real. 
Now, I spent about 100 days in the hospital, and I couldn't understand how I was laying here by the door on my back, and yet I was able to read all the notes that the Lord had on the desk. I couldn't reconcile that for months. And as I went over the incident time and time and time again, I realized what had happened as I was out of my body, standing behind the Lord, with my hurt arm resting on his shoulder, reading the notes over his shoulder. Vision number two. He gave me notes and instructions for the rest of my life. That's the first half. The second half, the floor of the apartment clears away and I stare straight down and I see the pit. Because I already know, if God is real and his word's real, I already know heaven's real. So conversely, hell is real as well. And he showed me the pit. He was merciful. He put a black cloud over the top of it so I could not see inside. But I could hear the screams. And that is what changed my life at that particular moment forever. He took all the hate. I was just in the process of trying to kill this man. This man was in the process of trying to kill me. And he took all that hate and anger out of my heart. And I don't even want this man to spend one moment in the sounds and the screams that I heard. And I'm not capable of that by myself, only by the grace of God. Let me be clear on that. I was not a forgiving person by nature in the profession that I chose, especially those who hurt children. And I just wouldn't have any mercy or forgiveness for this guy until I heard the screams. And I don't even want him to spend one moment down there. And that's only by the grace of God. Out of the black cloud comes this giant red dragon. Revelations 2, Satan's referred to as the great red dragon. Christ is showing me our enemy, what we are up against collectively as humanity. Get a look at him. Here's your enemy. See him. Recognize him. Understand him. He never speaks to me in the apartment, but he's presenting my, our, our enemy. And the dragon was huge and he was fierce and he was thrashing around and, and it was quite terrifying and frightening. And then that goes away. And I'm back by the door where I thought I was the whole time. For vision number three, third and final vision. As I'm laying here on my back, there's the door that I came in right here, and there's a wall right here, and I look on the wall, and it turns into a projector of the skyline of the city of San Diego. I know I'm almost a long way from home. If you guys check it out online, look at the skyline of the city of San Diego from the Coronado Bay from Coronado. It'll show you the skyline that I saw. To the left was a clock. To the right was a calendar. And I'm looking at this going, okay, skyline, city of San Diego, that's odd. I'm seeing a clock and a calendar. The interesting thing about the calendar, it was daily, not monthly. And then some things started to change. The clock started to spin like a fan, so it was so blurry, it was impossible for me to see the time. And the calendar started flipping so fast, it was impossible for me to tell the date. I make no predictions. All I say is what the Bible says will come to pass, will come to pass. And I stake eternity on it. A little bit of light rain clouds come in, a little bit of drizzle, a little bit of lightning. Some of the bay water started washing up into the streets. And then the next thing I saw, every building, every window, every blade of grass, everything from as far north to as far south that I could see was burning and on fire little end-time prophecy. And I'm watching this, hor this 
terrifying yet amazing yet horrible scene of the city of San Diego and everything that I can see is burning and on fire. But the message was not fear. The message was hope. That there is still time for us to repent. Still time for us to humble ourselves before the Lord. Get on our knees before the Lord. Get right with the Lord. Men, get your family right with the Lord. Get your children right with the Lord. So before this great and terrible day happens, you don't have to fear it. So it's not about fear. It was about there is still time. Every day he doesn't return is his mercy and grace. That he would come back. And we can have an opportunity to reach out to our family, friends, loved ones, and neighbors who don't know the Lord yet and give them an opportunity. That's the message. Those are the three visions that he shared with me. That vision goes away and I'm laying there and I have my interaction with the suspect and he asked me, hey, would you like to crawl out to your friends now? Suspect has a change of heart. Just moments ago we were shooting at each other and now he wants to help me out and help me get out of the apartment. Suspect tries, he can't get it. The guy's outside, pour fire in the house, he goes diving back two times. He tried twice, he couldn't get it. Suspect and I have a conversation. And he tells me that he's done. He dives and he's right next to me, shoulder to shoulder. And we're looking at each other and he says, I'm done, man. I'm done. And I said, it's okay, brother. Don't worry about it. He says, hey, I got an idea. Let's go together. And I said, I'm looking right at the Lord. And I said, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Ultimately, suspect runs and hides again. The Lord is gone. I'm able to exit the apartment and was dragged to safety. Suspect has a change of heart, starts firing, engaging us again. And my partner who carried me down the stairs laid on the top of me so I wouldn't suck up any more high-powered rifle rounds. As long as a mom and two babies from the underneath apartments were hiding behind him, he became a human shield, not only for me, but for mom and her kids. And I say this with the utmost and sincere heart, and I'll leave you with this. The Lord is real. He loves each and every one of you so much. Only by the grace of God I'm alive. Only by the grace of God I'm here to testify to you that it's real. And I beg each and every one of you in your own way to turn to the Lord. Because he's there, he's faithful, and he's loving. And only by the grace of God I'm alive. And I honor all my brothers and sisters and those who paid the ultimate sacrifice so that I could come up here and stand on this stage today. And if you take anything away from this, just know how much the Lord loves you, how real he is, and even the suspect had the opportunity to view Jesus. God bless you all.